Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. to episode 8 of the Oh Gosh Oh Golly Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 8, we are looking at Excalibur number 8, Excalibur's New York Adventure, originally published in May 1989. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Ron Lim on penciling and plotting, Joseph Rubenstein on inks, John A. Wilcox on colors, Tom Orzachowski on lettering, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. Excalibur. Is it true? Take it quickly! This is the first issue of Excalibur not drawn by Alan Davis, which inevitably creates something of a tonal shift, as does the change in location from the UK to New York, and specifically a non-demon-infested New York. That's important. This issue makes the most of its setting, including some fun 80s-inspired fashions, which I'm sure we will want to discuss with today's very special guest, who I will introduce in a moment. But first, we'll introduce our usual crew, starting with myself. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I'm a writer, talker, maker, sometime university instructor who likes talking about comics and issues of representation. I'm the co-host of another podcast called Three Panel Contrast, and I also remain Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, although this coming week I'm moving a step to being a little bit more official as I become one of the new regular reviewers for Comics XF for the new Nightcrawler-led team book Way of X. Look out for it. I am joined, as always, by Mav, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hi. Uh, congratulations. <laughs> on, well, on congratulations the on my volunteer unpaid yeah, gig. On the but, volunteer yeah. gig. That's all, yeah. It's always, it, you have a place to talk about stuff. Um, you know, as someone who literally spends most of his life talking about stuff on the internet for very little money. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, can... honestly, like, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, I actually am super excited about it, but yeah. I also don't want people to think it's like a paid job. So, you know, you kind of got to get that happy right. medium. Well, it's unofficial PR manager. You're working on it. Yeah, exactly, you know, if, exactly. If someone wants to give you thousands and thousands of dollars per month to officially promote Kurt Wagner, I think that you'll take it. You know, so... <laughs> Anna is available. I'm just putting her out there for people. Um, I'm Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. And I am. Um, I do a lot of the same stuff that Anna does, but in different places. Uh, I am a adjunct lecturer at, uh, uni at Duquesne University and at Mount Aloysius College in Pittsburgh. I teach uh, cultural studies and English uh, with a focus on representations of culture and class and sexuality and race and things like that in 20th century and 21st century pop culture. So comics are 
Twitter, a thing that I love. I also have another podcast. I'm the one of four hosts of Vox Popcast, which is a pop culture analysis um, podcast. And I'm a big, long-time comics geek, so it's uh, always fun to be here. And Andrew, would you like to t- introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. Um, I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University on the campus of the University of Waterloo. Um, I do a lot of things, but the thing that eats up all my time is a project called the Claremont Run, um, which is a large, multifaceted thing best known for its social media engagement at Claremont Run. Uh, and that's probably it. Would you say that you spend more time on Claremont Run or more time on grading? Which What's the balance? Um, I don't even know. Probably grading still, but I have a daughter who has sensory issues and, and you have to like be in the room with her until she falls asleep. So like I get a lot of work done <laughs> during Aww. that hour and a half every night on the Claremont Run. I'm gonna think about that context every time I read your threads now. That's when I'm like angry in the Claremont run. Yeah. (laughs) No, no. Opposite of that. Opposite of that. There's there's a lot in Claremont run, which is very sweet, touching moments. We're just gonna imagine (laughs) those are all written in your daughter's room. I'm gonna assume that as well. We are joined this week, as I mentioned, by an extremely exciting guest, Monica Giraffo. Welcome, Monica. Thank you. Monica is a professional fashion historian and a costume designer for film and television. She received her MA in Fashion and Textile Studies from the Fashion Institute of Technology and her BA in Screen Arts and Cultures from the University of Michigan. Her research focuses on the representation of fabric and fashion trends within other popular culture mediums, especially superhero comics and their film and television adaptations. One of her favorite career moments is installing superhero costumes for museum exhibitions with FIDM Museum in Los Angeles. Most recently, her work has appeared in the film Fashion and Consumption Journal and on the website The Middle Spaces, where you recently wrote about costuming in the 90s Flash television show and a wonderful, wonderful piece. So Monica, before we embark on the exciting journey that's going to be our discussion of this issue, I'd like to give our listeners a sense of the guest's Excalibur acumen. So tell me, is this your first time reading Excalibur? It actually, it is. So my experience with comic books is I was given just like tubs and tubs of 80s comics as as a kid. And so like if it wasn't in the tubs, I didn't read it. <laughs> so this was one of the ones that, that didn't make the the cut until now. And, and I'm a little disappointed that this is my first experience because I feel like I would have loved these growing up. God, I think about that quite a bit. I didn't encounter Excalibur until my late 20s. And I'm like, I would have really liked this comic as like a 12, 13 year old. But so what kind of stuff was in the tub? What was your comics acumen from that tub of comics so when, when I say tub I mean like tubs I mean like thousands and that like probably like 6,000 comics were in this tub oh and I definitely okay. read wow. all of them and they were all from the <laughs> 70s and 80s and they were mostly DC and Marvel titles and the thing that I gravitated to the most was Chris Claremont's X-Men run but I also was a really big New Mutants fan a really big Teen Titans fan um I I think I I gravitated most towards because I was like a 12 year old girl coming across all these comics all of the like the more teen centric relationship centric type dynamics but then I also really remember like loving Power Man and Iron Fist for some Mm. reason there was there was a a period of time in which I referred to my parents as Power Man and Iron Fist that so much that's gonna be great if they don't understand it or did they, did they understand the reference or oh just, no they understood why, the reference okay. <laughs> why are you saying that <laughs> 
So who who gave you the comics? Was it like a family member or a friend or? Um, yeah, it was uh, my ex stepdad. Um, I, I grew up in this family that was very like, if you say that you're bored, we're going to give you something to do. And and so one summer I said, I'm bored. And he was like, you can sell all these on eBay. And I never sold any of them because I, I read oh. all of them and loved all of them so much. <laughs> Oh, I love that. I love that. I love the interesting stories about, like, I don't want to typecast anyway, but I do find that there's often sort of interesting stories with sort of women getting into comics in particular, because we're often just not given comics, you know, in the same way that still perhaps that's changed generationally. But, you know, definitely when I was a kid, it just wasn't sort of expected that you'd be into comics as a, as a girl. So it was like, I find when I talk to women who are sort of 30 or so now or whatever age, like sort of in, in my particular older millennial age group, that we always have these sort of weird journeys about how we discovered comics and yeah I had just sort of a smattering of comics when I was a teenager and yeah it's taken me a long time to kind of get there but um, we'll return to some of your first impressions about Excalibur because I'm definitely intrigued about sort of your knowledge of X-Men and how that's going to impact your reading of this but um, first we will do our little summary of the issue and then we will get into our discussion so Excalibur number eight Excalibur's New York adventure opens with Brian mixing things up this time he's angry and confused in a New York hotel room wearing a pair of purple striped pajama pants instead of his usual lime green sweats. He's shouting about Megan being missing, but quickly realizes the whole team is missing, all of them leaving helpful notes stuck to the mirror. According to the notes, Kurt's gone to California to retrieve the X-Men's old Blackbird jet, Kitty's gone to visit the new mutants, and Rachel's gone to visit her baby brother, sort of, Nathan. But there's no note for Megan, which, as Brian observes, is not exactly surprising as she's, quote, barely literate. His uniform having been destroyed during the events of Inferno, Brian puts on some spiffy gym togs, his words, and flies off to search for Megan. We, the readers, catch up with Megan on a beach at Coney Island, where she's in tears recalling the events of Inferno, where she enslaved Brian and used him to try and kill Kitty while she was under the influence of the demon Nastir. She's found by a group of young women and shapeshifts before they properly see her, into a semblance of the seeming leader of the group, acquiring brown skin and dark hair. The girls assume Megan's been a victim of some type of sexual violence. They take her back to Manhattan and outfit her with new clothes. Meanwhile, Kitty arrives at the X-Mansion, or at least what used to be the X-Mansion. It was destroyed during the events of Inferno. She meets the new mutants and gives them crap about the mutant massacre. She also meets Ileana who's been de-aged into a child post-Inferno. This reunion is difficult. Child Ileana runs away, and Kitty cries about missing her best friend. Brian has a series of adventures. He saves a woman from being run over by a car, which causes him to lose his pants, which forces him to change into a tank top and short shorts, which garners him plenty of attention. He gets his wallet stolen, nearly arrested for soliciting, and realizes he's losing his superpowers, both his flight ability and his super strength. He's forced to get a taxi and continues searching for Megan that way. Megan, meanwhile, wanders away from her new girlfriends into the arms of a gentleman of age. Asian descent, who she once again shapeshifts to resemble. He takes her to a street fair where they dance, but when he tries to force a sexual encounter afterwards, Megan shifts into the goblin princess and scares him away. From there, we check in with Kurt, who easily steals the blackbird, and then Rachel, hovering outside the X-Factor space station, watching Jean Grey take care of baby Nathan. Rachel decides not to reveal herself to Jean, reasoning that she's got enough on her plate at the moment. Back in New York, Megan shapeshifts into an African-American woman to help some guys win at basketball. Mid-slam dunk, she's finally found by Brian, who manages to gather enough strength to fly above the crowd to embrace her. Brian and Megan return to the hotel, where Megan finally shifts back into her usual appearance, pays the cab driver with the money she won in the basketball game, and tells the chagrined Brian, allow me this once to save you. I actually like this issue a lot for all of its potentially problematic explorations of identity, which we will certainly talk about, but I want to start with everybody else's first impressions, and we will start with you, Monica, being that this is your first encounter with Excalibur. So was this actually the first issue that you read? Like, did you just read this issue, or did you read the ones leading up to this issue? No, so I I read sort of issues one through 
10. Oh, okay. Because for me, when I'm analyzing an issue, it's important to put it sort of within the context of all the other issues, especially knowing that this is a comic that's not usually set in New York. I, I wanted mm-hmm. to, you know, it obviously it looks different because there's a different artist, but I also wanted to answer, like, are these clothes actually different because of a change in geography versus if they're just different because of the artist? And, and they definitely do look different, which is something I can talk about more later. For overall impressions, really struck by Excalibur, like, despite covering very heavy subject matter, sort of feels lighter. And I feel like maybe that's because you've already gotten these introductions through X-Men that, like, you can sort of jump straight to, like, the character, like, idiosyncrasies to drive the plot along instead of exposition about who they are. So I found it to feel like it moved faster, like it was, I guess, more more fun. It kind of had that, um, like, the, the very 80s, uh, like, labyrinth fantasy with all of the, the demon monsters, which was something yeah. that I was a big fan of growing up. So I love this series. You, you've started something. Now I'm going to read all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome aboard. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of a PR job, this whole podcast, getting people to, because we've had a lot of people, obviously, that are already fans of the series revisiting it, but, you know, getting people sort of introduced to this series as well is one of our goals. Um, other first impressions, we'll get back to some of the discussion about fashion and setting in a moment, but do either of you remember reading this for the first time or anything that stood out to you upon rereading? I think this one's kind of a little bit of a letdown for me. Like, the day this thing is big, and it could be I'm just feeling that gap, but I would argue that the, the illustration here is actually subpar for Ron Lim. Yes. If anyone's familiar with his work on, say, Mm -hmm. Infinity Gauntlet when he was trying to follow George Perez or mm-hmm. Silver Surfer. Th- this one feels rushed to me. I, I also, I-, I didn't like that Kurt wouldn't go back to the school with Kitty because he was a mentor to a lot of those New Mutants characters, including Ileana. Um, That bothered me a bit. And then, um, I don't know, this one felt like filler. Do you know what I mean? Just like a little odd way the plot was structured. It was sort of telling us the emotional cues of the previous issue, but those cues were either there or you're projecting them in after the fact. So there's just a lot of things about this that I felt kind of sloppy to me c- compared to the standard that had been set in Excalibur. It does far. have the feel of a fill-in issue issue and I do wonder if it was produced relatively quickly because I agree that I'm very familiar with Ron Lim's style as well I really liked his run on Silver Surfer and I've read all the Marvel Cosmic yeah. stuff that he did I was a fan of that stuff before I ever re- read Excalibur so I agree that I don't think it's up to his usual standards although of the artists from the era in which Claremont was still working on the book I think Ron Lim's probably my favorite he does another issue later on that I think is a little bit better yes agreed but um but yeah but it's a little bit of a it's a letdown after the intensity perhaps of the last two issues but yeah you, you just as soon as we get to an artist who's not Davis though you just think about this story and how much different it would be if it was drawn by Davis and you can't stop thinking about it but uh, how about you mm. Matt first impressions uh, I felt much the same way in you know when I read this in 1989 or whatever as, as Andrew just said I was a big Ron Lim fan at the time so I felt let down on two levels reading it in 2021 going back and reading it I I sort of appreciate what's happening more but at the time it just felt it felt stuck in the middle of a storyline that I was enjoying it it felt disjointed because it wasn't Davis's artwork. It felt weird because like it did not seem up to the standards of, of Lim or Rubenstein. <laughs> it, it just, there was a lot wrong with it and not much happens in the character development that happens in this issue. I think I appreciate it now more. It felt a little subtle and weird. And I think there's some dated points of, in, of to it too, that like sort of the exploration of Megan via race is, I think is an interesting discussion that like maybe 
maybe Claremont wasn't ready to do in 1989 in one fill-in issue of a book that wasn't all that popular compared to, you know, his other work. So there's a lot going on. So it wasn't my favorite issue back then. Now, in the future, knowing what will become on some other issues, I like it better compared to, no spoilers, but compared to what is my least favorite part of Excalibur, which is coming up in a few weeks. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Actually, several weeks, a couple of months. It is... um, it's not as bad as I, I felt about it at that point. Yeah, I mean, when I said that I kind of like this issue, I do like that we're finally getting a Megan-focused issue and at least having an attempt to deal with some of the identity issues that we haven't really seen explored with her. Again, I want to talk about why that's sort of problematic or if there's ways that we could have done this story differently. But maybe let's start with, we've all kind of brought up a little bit sort of some questions about setting, and I certainly want to talk about the relationship of sort of fashion and style to that as well. So obviously, as we've discussed, we have a change here from the usual UK setting of Excalibur to New York. And I'm curious about, like we've talked in earlier episodes about Excalibur being in part feeling a little bit unique because it's set in this very confined domestic space of the Braddock Lighthouse. You know, obviously they're going to other places as well, but we have that vibe of them having this confined domestic space that leads to a lot of what's interesting about the character interactions. But here the team is out in the wilder world, wilder world, out in the wider world and split up for the most part. We get sort of Kitty on her own, Kurt on his own, and Brian and Megan largely on their own and then meeting up. Uh, at the end of the story. So how is the setting mobilized thematically here? Like, does it matter that this story is set in New York as opposed to being set in London? Like, how does that change kind of the fabric of this story? Well, I would say, I I think one of the things it does is it creates a sense of separation for the characters from their comfort zones, at least their sort of pre-established comfort zone. I'm thinking specifically of Megan here and Brian a little bit. Just the idea that they're figuring out their relationship and in Megan's case, she's figuring out who she is and maybe Brian to a lesser extent. Um, So having them be in this sort of um, it's portrayed from their perspective as a chaotic zoo right I think that lends itself to their character development a little bit yeah and I mean they're the they're the ones that are interacting the most with the city right because I mean Kurt is not even in New York he goes to okay how does Kurt get to California I, I don't <laughs> understand what happened there when I was rereading it I was like I thought maybe he was just going to steal the plane from like upstate New York or something and I'm like oh no he's in California he, and he has got to there... go there to get the plane so mm-hmm. what he, and he got there somehow before Brian woke up having left I know <laughs> I know. I know. He's he had chartered... a huge boost to his teleport powers. I don't know what happened. No, because he can't. He 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 specifically mentions that he couldn't do that. It is weird. He's like, I can't teleport more than once a day, so that sucks. So I had to do this the hard way, and I'm like, what was the hard way? Because, I know he doesn't because... explain. <laughs> It doesn't, yeah, it makes no sense. I mean, did he charter a private jet from New York to LA? And if so, then why does he need the Blackbird? (laughs) Well, it's funny because it's one of those funny (laughs) continuity things because it's like, it makes the point of like being like, well, it's really important that the Blackbird was in California right now. And we don't want to like just put it somewhere else because that wouldn't be in continuity. But then you're like... Wouldn't it have made more sense to just write some like bullshit thing about the plane had been relocated to New York conveniently? I'm not <laughs> anyway. even sure why it's in California because it's uh, Andrew. You, maybe you've read them. The last I remember the X Men having it when, when the X Men died, which they still believe they were in Texas. I don't know why the jets in California. Yeah, and I think they teleported to Texas too. Part of them did. Ilyana might have ferried all of them actually. Yeah. I so somehow the jets in California, but like, but it's been years. So and it's in a government storage 
storage facility. So the answer is, so like you can solve this problem by just saying the United States government has taken possession of the Blackbird and is storing it in Albany. Done. Yeah, that would have made a lot more sense. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. One of those things we need to move past it. So I want to turn to you, Monica, for this setting question, because a lot of your work on comics, I know, is centered on fashion and kind of making a case for sort of the importance of fashion as part of the fabric of how superhero comics and all types of comics tell stories and all types of media tell stories as well. So, and I know you've read a lot of 80s comics. I know you've done a lot of work on 80s fashion. How accurate did you feel this comic was at kind of representing this space and time? Did you get the sense that an artist like Ron Lim is kind of doing research, situating himself in this moment, or does it just feel really out of left field for you? It's an interesting question. Um, I I did sort of think about in what ways these these garments look, like how New York are they? Are, are they really indicative of the place? And I wasn't fully able to answer that on first reading, but when I went back and looked at the other issues to look at how London is depicted, and again, obviously these are two different artists, but you can really see that stereotypical versions of both New York and London dress are being presented. And and what I mean by that is like in a few issues earlier, like there are kids on the, the subway platform like with mohawks and there's you know a little boy in his little in his little sweater and his shorts and those are both very like very punk very mod like very stereotypical british forms of dress and then when you look at this new york issue i mean there's a lot more of this sportswear not just being worn by brian but being worn by people on the street and there's a lot more business suiting but it's specifically business suiting that's that's not as tailored. It's it's very drapey, especially with the man that uh, Megan meets on Coney Island. It's a very like kind of unstructured Armani suit, which from like mm-hmm. American Gigolo and, and Miami Vice are really presented as like quintessentially American suiting and like an American form of dress. And sportswear is sort of the same too, because after like the 84 Los Angeles Olympics, you really see a huge up- uptick in these sort of uh, athletic wear trends and so from that aspect you are you're not necessarily seeing accuracies but you are seeing representations of what quote-unquote Americans are and would dress like from within the comic so it is still a, a reflection of I guess how culture views those nationalities if that oh, if that that's makes such sense. a good point that makes so much sense too in terms of the specificity given to Brian wearing sportswear which is not something that we've seen him wear in the UK century issues in which we usually see him wearing a suit when he's not dressed as a superhero or we see him in the mm-hmm. lime green sweatpants it's, it's one of those three things <laughs> but like here he makes specific references to borrowing those clothes from the hotel and it's a matching tracksuit right I love that it's a matching tracksuit yeah. because that is very on trend too. Is is not just to be wearing sportswear, but but to be wearing full matching sportswear because you're seeing it not just in gym settings, but also it's it's a very like New York, like the New York hip hop scene is is really starting to come to prominence in the late '80s as well. Well, can I ask you more generally, like for us to kind of get an argument from you about why is it important to look at fashion in something like a superhero comic? Why why is it important for us to have these kind of conversations, which I would certainly argue as a superhero researcher has been very underrepresented in the discourse on comics, probably because of the nature of the people who are doing the research who maybe don't have the qualifications to speak to some of those dynamics. But if you had to make us an argument for, oh, that wasn't a burn on anybody. Come on. I felt that one. But, <laughs> oh, 
Oh, come on now. <laughs> but if you had to make an argument for this being an important thing to talk about in comics, and just as we're recording this, they had been releasing all the looks for the Hellfire Gala for the current X-Men comics. So there's been so much conversation on social media about X-Men fashion and the relationship between mutant powers and fashion. And this is a signifying device that's particularly important in the X-Men universe. So yeah, getting back to that basic question that I sort of talked over, like, why is it important to look at fashion in superhero comics? It's a question I love to answer. Um, And the reason I love this issue so much is because it's actually a really exemplary case of why you should study fashion in comics. Because, I mean, the characters are spending a majority of their time outside of their regular costume. And it's narratively motivated instead of just being fashion for fashion's sake. It's happening for reasons that are both indicative of characterization and plot within this particular issue. And when it comes to general overall argument of why should we study, why should we have discussions of X-Men fashion? I mean, frankly, the words fashion and costume get thrown around a lot in comics, and they're not necessarily the same definitions that a fashion scholar would use when they're talking about Mm -hmm. fashion and costume, especially when you're looking at something like um, a Hellfire Gala look. So in my frame of mind, costume is, it's static, it's unchanging, it's uniformity, it's the archetypal sort of cape and tights. And then fashion are garments that could be purchased at the mall. They are garments that are aesthetic without any purpose. They're garments that change for no reason other than aesthetic. And so sometimes you see these definitions thrown around differently inside of comics. But my big argument has always been that the superhero is defined by his duality or her duality. It's always, you're not just talking about Superman, you're talking about Clark Kent. And you're not just talking about Spider-Man, you're talking about Peter Parker. It's part of what makes the hero the hero. And so to only ever talk about the costume that they're wearing, that's only talking about what they're wearing half the time. That's only talking about half of who they are. That's like saying the only thing you need to know about your mailman is that he works at UPS <laughs> instead of the fact that like he might have a family and, and interests outside of his job as a mailman. And that's ridiculous to me. So <laughs> I, I just feel like there's so much that can be learned from characterization when you're not wearing your uniform because that's the places where you really see uh, indicators of individual choice coming out and so that's a huge opportunity to be building on discussions of characterization for these heroes when they're wearing clothes that aren't their superhero suit that's my elevator pitch for you I just wanted to ask Monica and I may have actually emailed you about this at one point we've had a couple dialogues how do you feel along those same lines about the sort of fictional nature of this environment and how that affects things like you know fit like fabric material all that kind of stuff how does costuming in comics go beyond say costuming in something like like film as a result of that are you sort of speaking speaking from the perspective of you know comics as a medium sort of the idea that anything that can be drawn can be believed and the excesses of these bodies is that kind of where you're coming from i think that's certainly a part of it yeah like we're just getting into an era where people are starting to draw clothes in comics like realistic fabric and davis is a huge part of that so i thought that might be something worth us noting yeah exactly Exactly. Close. Uh, one of the thing, one of the interesting things about Davis is Davis dresses the Davis dresses his characters out of costume, which is a lot for Excalibur, frankly, yeah. in in individual fashion that changes from day to day. With the exception of Brian, who, as Anna pointed out, really has three outfits. But that's <laughs> but that's a thing with Brian. That's like that's him different. We picked on Kurt's outfits a lot on this show to have fun. He's Kurt is experimenting with fashion. Kitty has a very specific look. Rachel has a very specific look. Megan doesn't until 
just now doesn't dress in anything except for her orange jumpsuit, but that's also intentional. They're uh, superhero comics at this point for most other people. Peter Parker wears the same thing every day, you know, in in, in his comics. It's just there's a very definite look that doesn't really change. It's not really indicative of any actual fashion trend other than, you know, in high school, he wore this shirt and tie and sweater vest. And then he's got kind of this sweater vest. Yeah. And then in, and then in college through the 80s, he's got his orange turtleneck and denim jacket that he wears on the cartoon. And most of the time in his in his superhero appearances, I mean, his his comic book appearances, that's very much a Peter Parker thing. Clark Kent, Clark Kent's costume is a issue. blue suit. <laughs> yeah. It, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's in this <laughs> issue. But that is the look, the, you know, clothing as opposed to secret identity outfits were costumes in exactly the way Monica is saying in a way that um, that was not true for Davis and is not he is doing fashion differently and that changes you know McFarlane who I was not a big fan of will will adopt that same sort of thing around this time and in his Spider-Man books where he'll start dressing Peter and Mary Jane differently depending on where they're going and what day it is than they just used to just dress in the same outfit the same hair all the time which which is a change and I think that's an important change well yeah and I mean if we talk about you know the importance of clothing to character because I mean it's important regardless sort of of whether an artist is putting the time into the clothes or they're not because the fact that they're not putting the time into it and they're dressing Clark Kent or Peter Parker in these generic outfits which are the same all the time that says something too right I mean it says that they don't think that this personality is worth developing in a certain way and I didn't put the effort into doing that and I mean there's industrial factors as well the reason a lot of artists don't draw clothes is because it's hard (laughs) they are producing like many comics in short periods of time and so drawing superheroes in their superhero costumes is easier I mean that's part of history of the superhero genre that's part of the production history of the genre but getting back to that question Andrew that you asked of Monica yeah like I am definitely interested in hearing you speak to that about how does kind of the reality or fantasy of fashion kind of work in a space like a superhero comic in which we're not beholden to reality in any way and yet you might want to have some semblance of reality in order to ground us in this world and of course that's so important to Marvel comics which has these presumptions to grounding us in reality in some respect. Um, So I I will start by saying that one yes Peter Parker and Clark Kent may have been the worst examples <laughs> to possibly bring up yeah. but but you are seeing the same sort of variety of dress occurring in like Avengers comics at this point in time as well so it, it is something that you are seeing as this like market phenomenon and I, I do agree that there is sort of this the repetitious wearing of civilian clothing becomes synonymous with costume because you again view them as sort of static unchanging garments and then to fully talk about this concept of realism or fantasy like that's my full obsession that's how we got into this um (laughs) is is it theoretically so there's a quote that i always bring up and not to get too theoretical but by barths he sort of studied fashion photography and fashion magazines and his main argument was just because they look like real clothes doesn't make them real clothes they are representations of garments even though these garments exist in the real world. And I think that that's totally akin to what we're looking at in these superhero comics, where these might have come as source material from another movie, from a fashion magazine, and they've somehow become represented representations of fashion within comics. And that's huge, because then what you're not just saying is, or what you're saying is that representations of fashion, conceptions of fashion, what people think is fashion, is important to the comic. And then that's telling you sort of 
cultural value systems of readership, of authorship within comics. And that's sort of the ability to study popular culture as a whole, right? So I I find the, these fantasies to be incredibly important because if these garments cannot truly exist, if these were only ever meant to be drawn, that's sort of the places where you start to find issues when they become real world adaptations in film. And But it's also the places where you see like comic books are already acknowledging that these are clothes that were never meant to be worn and were only ever meant to be fantasies because they're made of stuff like unstable molecules like unstable molecules <laughs> are fictitious fabrics like no and, and that's a huge point like <laughs> yes unfortunately for all of us yes <laughs> I yeah I think it I mean it's absolutely a huge point particularly I mean around this period you start moving well actually we're 10 years removed from the height of you know when we're really getting X-Men movies and we're getting Blade and there was a lot of well why didn't you put them in the superhero outfits you know and it's because have you seen the Captain America movie that came out right around now or the Fantastic Four movie that didn't come out right around now they're awful because those costumes look really crappy in real life you know you have to make modifications Jack Kirby was not a fashion designer. He was a comic book designer. Those are different. <laughs> they are very different. It is a very different skill set. And I and he was not taking real life clothing into account. And I think we're what's the conversation Monica's leading on us on here is because we're ending up in this really interesting place where what where people are at least trying to do what Bart was hinting at when he said that, which is you're trying to create the illusion of reality. You know, Stan Lee said that a lot when it would about his writing, but you're trying to do that with the um with the comics the illusion of change the illusion of reality are those real clothes no but they're supposed to feel like you're supposed to feel like megan can put on the mini skirt and the turtleneck and you know and wander around feels like something's happening there that's real even if it's not and oh my goodness what happens to her clothes when she shapeshifts into the other person and she presumably is shapeshifting her clothes but where did the other clothes go well she, they they stay though they stay except for when she decides to play basketball her clothes magically disappear and go oh, back into her yeah, orange jumpsuit when right, she plays that's basketball. that's right that's right that's right but when she goes from when she goes from black to asian she's in the same outfit that's right which is interesting well let's talk about megan's journey in particular and sort of the impact of clothes within that journey and get some sort of specifics of how clothes are helping tell the story here and that will get us into some of the potential racial appropriation issues as well i'm sure so in what sense are clothes part of megan's journey here like if we're going to make a case for a specific case talking about this issue about why looking at superhero fashion is important do we see that in megan's story absolutely i mean the fact that she transitions back to her own clothes when she comes to play basketball when I was talking earlier about sort of this being very linked to characterization it's so important when you're looking at fashion to think about if this is clothing that a character chose themselves or clothing that was given to the character because you need to know if these are clothes that are they saying something about the person who's wearing it or are they saying something about the person who's giving it and in this case basketball is this moment where she sort of is like re-articulating herself has regained her self-confidence and so she's choosing to re-identify with her superhero costume which makes it sort of like intrinsically linked to her entire journey in this issue yeah and i mean i like okay that does get us towards some of the racial appropriation stuff because if we're gonna think that her playing basketball and having this moment is her coming closest to reuniting with her true self she has an interesting moment where she's in the cab with 
with Brian after they've reunited. And she's looking at her brown skin in the reflection of the cab window. And Brian is saying, you know, those aren't your real features. And Megan is saying, but this is what I look like. These must be my real features. And kind of enjoying that particular experience of embodiment. What the heck do we do with this? Is there a way to tell this kind of story that's not problematic? Or is this just always going to be a problem? This kind of exploring identity through racial transformation story. I've thought about this a lot. <laughs> I've thought about this one like really a lot. And I, and I want as a writer, as a scholar, I want to have it both ways, right? Like I want to say that you can invest in the story of racial identity. And I think what Brian says to her is really important here where he says, these aren't your real features because you don't look at her in her real features ever. When you met her, she was a wolf girl. Like that was, you know, like, like her real features to Brian are looking like me or looking like my dream girl. We've, we've talked about that a bunch before. If you are a mutant that is um, that is a shapeshifter, what race are you really is a weird, you know, that that's what race, what gender. These are weird questions that don't have substantive answers if you start thinking about them for, you know, for too long. Because, you know, Zavin in Runaways did this very well, right? 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 Like Zavin makes the determination to be female because he was in love with a character who was female and identified as lesbian. But Zavin themselves did not care. Zavin was a scroll. He's like, sex and gender are meaningless to me. A very early non-binary character for comics. Megan is white because Brian is. But if you look at, say, Mystique, what race is Mystique really? She's blue. What race is Kurt? Kurt's German. And so we talk about him like he's white, but is he? Oh, you know, I, I have I've thought about it a lot with the Kurt example because there is an example that we're going to get to in Excalibur where they go to another dimension where there's like a human version of him who presents as white and there have been multiple I mean that's an alternate universe so who knows but there was also a storyline from after he and Kitty go back to the X-Men where the high evolutionary demutates everybody and Kurt gets demutated and presents as white and X-Men forever he gets demutated and presents as white but perhaps with some ambiguity in that case but mostly he presents as white so that's a really interesting question in terms of because when Kurt had used the image inducer before he chooses to present as white and that says something about his fantasies of normalcy but then making a decision about what race that character is is very interesting right. and I just that's another thing where I'm like I think every choice would have been wrong like I think every choice would have been problematic he's defaulting to white right he's mm -hmm. defaulting to white because the character is is from a point in comics where white where whiteness is the default character uh, trait right Storm is interesting because she She's black at one point, right? Like that's a, it's like, oh yes. And she's black is like her thing. Even the original, you know, or the, the original, the all new, all different X-Men are interesting because each one comes from a different country, including Storm coming from the country of Africa originally. Yes, I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, and it gets deeper. She's American born. Yeah, I know. It, it's, <laughs> it's so, uh, it's, it's a different conversation. Is. Yes. Yeah. And, and, but like, but Kurt is mostly is a white person because no one was asking the question at that point i don't i think like you well okay right. if you want to draw him as a human i guess i draw him as a white guy because everybody's white right and it was kind of like i think where they were going with it not, not intentionally i don't even mean in a bad way right so if you have a character like megan who fast forwarding many issues of of excalibur we're going to find out that we've not yet seen megan's true appearance um you, no, nor has brian you know so megan doesn't know her true appearance so what is race to her really and i 
think it's interesting in that she is just reflecting those around her in oh but it also does come across as problematic because there is a blackface element of it right there is a you are yeah. masquerading element of it that i don't think read quite as problematically in 1989 as it does in 2021 nowhere near as much so as when uh when lois lane does the same thing in a superman yeah. comic in the yeah. 70s or when punisher does it a couple years later in a comic written by a black man and punisher like i do get that they're trying to do a thing and i think that exploration is important i think the shapeshifterness of it and megan's naivety and non-humanness and just her general demeanor like her race doesn't mean the same thing to her as it does to other people so but we're still humans who are reading it so there's it's a projection still that becomes writing this and it's still you know yeah. white humans that are writing this so and it, it it's just it's very weird and i don't want to say it's wrong i don't want to say they shouldn't have done it because it's very weird but i don't think that it would have been much more self-conscious if they'd done it in 2021 yeah i can tell you what he was trying to do because he's been interviewed about the the race swaps extensively obviously psylocke being the big one um he, he claims that yeah no he, he's actually trying to dissolve entrenched perceptions in order to create a new perspective on racial relations so for him this was an attempt at being progressive is it progressive i i agree with you i think it's it's always going to read in bad taste but but i but i i mean anna's original question was is there a way to do this should we not try and right. i don't want to say we shouldn't try i i want to say that the, i want to say that the message that he's clearly trying to do here even more so than with psylocke it is very obvious what he is trying to do here she has four different races in this comic book you know <laughs> like it's clear that he's trying to like point out that her race is mutant and and she's not even perceptive of it so that story matters but i don't know how i don't know how you divorce it from the cultural context in which it is written or read and so i i, I don't know that it's possible too. Well, for either Andrew or Monica, I mean, does this get us back to sort of the inherently appropriative kind of nature of mutant identity? I mean, you know, this is an identity category that has the potential to consume every other identity category. And a character like Nightcrawler is a really good example of that, right? He represents no racial group, therefore represents every racial group in terms of metaphor. So, I mean, does this get us back to, you know, how superpowers often sit uncomfortably with kind of metaphors about race and difference, despite the fact that it would seem like they're so primed and so perfect for having those conversations when when we're slipping between sort of real life identity categories and fantasy identity categories, there's an inherent danger of appropriativeness there. Is that like a fair argument to make? Oh, no, I think you articulated that perfectly. I have nothing to contribute that wouldn't be better said than that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, why don't we, let's talk a little bit more specifically, perhaps about kind of the journey that Megan does go on then. I mean, this is a journey of her coming to some sort of realization about who she truly is through this experimentation, which, you know, we've already talked about about being problematic, but complicated. But like, I mean, what is the journey then? Like, does she come to a point where she's in a better place than she was at the start no. of this issue? Like, what is her journey? The, the place that she ends up with is Brian. And, and exactly as Monica was saying, she's back in her old costume. Like, she's on this journey of self-discovery. She finds all this this community and things that she loves and asserts herself uh, and she's in the middle of dunking on someone which is awesome yeah, yeah. and it's like oh Brian swoon uh, and, and she's learned nothing right she's right back in his arms I 
kept thinking, reading this issue, like, is this whole issue kind of a justification of a return to the status quo that makes us feel a little bit better about her agency problems, which remain ongoing? Do you? I mean, do you feel better about it? My, my issue with the, my issue with this issue, <laughs> weird to say, is that it doesn't matter. I think, I think a very interesting thing tries to happen in this book, but in the context of reading the great serialized epic that is Excalibur, if you skip this issue, you would never know. Yeah. Like, it, you can lift it right out and no one would ever know. Yeah, go ahead, Monica. Do you find this a, a convincing representation of... <laughs> Here's a horrible catchphrase, a horrible buzzword catchphrase, female empowerment. So I felt like the scene where she meets all of the girls in Coney Island is very metaphoric for the whole issue because it's it's essentially this idea that they all know somebody who's been beat up or assaulted by a partner. And yet the thing that they do is dress her back up so that she looks cute and flirty and tell her, well, now none of the boys are going to look at us. And it's, it is a very like, like these are Coney Island girls. These are not single Manhattan career girls. And to them, they exist in this like unspoken world where they cannot escape being defined by men or cannot escape this cycle of male violence where they all sort of exist to take care of each other and pick each other back up, but they can't actually fix the situation. It's a very like we are teaching each other how to survive within these circumstances. And when you look at sort of the the arc of the entire issue, it's it's the same thing. She's learned how to pick herself back up, but you're right, at the end she's still back in the same wardrobe, back with the same like not so great boyfriend and you know she she's sort of learned how to be herself within the cycle but she's still stuck in the cycle yeah, i mean 100%. it's interesting the motion that she goes through from and i think your comments about that opening and the, her relationship with the coney island girls are very very astute and i love that but i mean she moves from that to this incident of you know attempted sexual assault well i mean it is sexual assault with the with the guy that she dances with after she makes the second change but then her third change in the basketball scene is she's still female presenting there but she's enacting her identity within a male space with male characters and that's an interesting shift right like I mean what do we make of that in terms of is she rejecting this sort of connotatively feminine female space for a more connotatively masculine one is that her superhero journey and then retreating back into her Megan identity who is the perfect loving girlfriend of Captain Britain I'm not sure what to make of kind of that dynamic or that shift that's happening well that that basketball scene is also those men never sexualize like she's been sexualized throughout the entire rest of the issue and in that case that's not really brought up they're like oh can we even have subs but it's not really about like her and there's no mention of her attractiveness it's about her as a as a basketball player and that feels like a big moment too that the place where she feels like herself is one where she's not being defined by relationships and one where she's able to use her physical powers and her physical skills right and be appreciated for those things which is all of one panel i mean yeah, like they they, they, they do assume get. yeah they they assume that she won't be able to play because she's female they're like oh do you even it's, know how to play a, basketball it's her it's her lola bonnie moment right <laughs> yeah and then she dunks on them in the background of the shot because mm-hmm. that's she's not the important part there brian's the important part and there's a story there which i think is actually really interesting but it gets short-circuited by her reunion with brian and let us never speak of this again and that's my problem 
problem with it. It's just because, like I said, if you lift this issue out, knowing where Megan's going from here, as I do, she learned nothing. Brian learned nothing. The only thing that changes in the status quo is that as that Excalibur have the X-Men jet now. Yeah. That's the only, the only thing that you wouldn't know if you skip this issue. And I'm being hard on it because usually Excalibur is not like that. Yeah, it sets a higher bar. Yeah. Well, I, in terms of it being the X-Men jet, I just have to point out that I do like when Kurt goes to steal it. He's like, it's not stealing because it's my plane. Mine. And I'm like, when was the Blackbird your plane? But I mean, that's cool. That's cool. Like, you go, yeah, you, you, Charles Xavier's like, wait, what? Own your truth, Kurt. <laughs> but You're let's a kid who goes to my school. <laughs> can, I, can I just like go claim a building at the school I work at? <laughs> well, can, let's talk about Brian's journey then, because I think maybe that will get us to, maybe it'll get us to what we think this story is trying to do in terms of, because I do think that their thrust, the general thrust of the story is that it's trying to make us more okay with Brian and Megan. Do you guys agree that that's what it's doing? It's trying. Yeah, it wants yeah, to. Yeah, but we're saying for us, it's not perhaps succeeding. But what is Brian's journey? Because he has a lot of interesting things that happen to him in this issue and a lot of things that are specifically interesting in terms of gender. And maybe we'll start with you, Monica. What did you make of Brian's journey in this comic? To the extent that he's learning anything here or encountering challenges or conflicts, what are they and why are they so intensely gendered and sexualized as well? well I, I think my favorite commonality to start is that gym clothes are considered indecent for both Brian and Megan, which is just yeah, so like yeah. so 80s to be like, ew, you're wearing your gym clothes in public. <laughs> um. <laughs> And then, like, I mean, the contrast with two, I mean, it's just like, well, this is it worse than their superhero costumes. But because we have a certain understanding of those existing within this space, then that's okay. But if he's going to put on gym togs, if he's going to put on these short shorts and a tank top, that's like super risque. Which which is sort of his, um, when we talk about the the ways that fashion might inform this, this conversation, like it's entirely revolving around fashion because the superhero costume is sort of widely accepted as this like second skin that like emphasizes nudity without being naked and yet now that you've removed that costume what you're saying is like now now the simulated nudity isn't there and it's actual nudity and now that's the problem and now that's the thing that's making him human and normal and like it's just regular old like regular sexy nakedness <laughs> rather than like a, an appreciation of his like strength and and heroism which is what you're usually getting from the simulated nudity of, of the superhero costume so it's it's very much like a depowering of him you know and it makes us think too about how much we're sort of inundated with the conventionalization of the superhero costume to like we're trained to think it's normal but we're reminded in the attention that brian gathers here how unnormal it is right which i find interesting but like also just it makes me think about you know in classical art there's sort of a difference between nakedness and nudity like a nude you're a using leaf. nakedness to <laughs> yeah yeah you have like either a discrete cover-up but even you can still have nudity so a nude is sort of like the nakedness is representing a story right there's something contextual to it it has a meaning that's greater than the fact of nakedness because nakedness is associated with pornography but a nude is like classy porn <laughs> it's like when a body is being used to tell a story it's like a piece of classical artwork telling a classical scene from classical mythology and that's like what classes up nakedness right and i think about the superhero genre 
as like a superhero in their superhero costume. There's an illusion of nudity, but it's definitely nudity and not nakedness. And you see here where Brian's actual skin is exposed and he's wearing normal human clothes, his nudity becomes closer to nakedness. And he is actually literally naked in one of these panels where it seems to be like his pants and underwear and whatever else he's been wearing have poofed away when he uses his super strength because he looks down and there's like a kid that perceives him as naked. So that's an interesting moment for Brian as well. I mean, why put him in these moments where he's constantly sort of embarrassed by his body, made a spectacle of in the space? Like, is this kind of bringing him down a peg? Like, what is this journey for Brian? I I mean, I love that because there is sort of this like unwritten superhero rule that's like your costume can get ripped, but like Mm -hmm. you never lose the like the nudie parts. (laughs) Like, (laughs) and and, like there's even I think there's specifically a joke in like a She-Hulk comic that's like, nope, this part of the costume is like protected by by the Comics Code Authority, (laughs) and in this one, like you're throwing that away. Yeah, (laughs) she wears the chemise under her um, business suit that gets shredded when she her lawyer suit gets shredded, and how is your underwear just fine? And then she shows the label in the back. She wears Comic Code Authority brand underwear essentially, (laughs) so as to not have that problem. But do we see it? Like it reminds me of a convention in romance, and you know this goes all the way back to something like Jane Eyre, where you have this sort of aggressive masculine figure who needs to be humbled and sometimes that's done through disability sometimes that's done through injuring the character in other ways but the male aggressive stereotypical masculine character has to be humbled in some way to make him an appropriate partner for the woman in the story and this is a common common convention across like when I say romance I don't mean romance in kind of like the literary sense but romance in kind of the generic sense like genre romance so is that part of what's happening here are we humbling Brian so that we feel better about him being with Megan I think that could be part of it one other piece that might be in play is that like claremont is known extensively for using bdsm symbols and as much as this this could read as um a female gay something that anna's worked a lot on we could also read it as a humiliation fantasy right from a male perspective because claremont does that a lot he's done that many times he's done it with sam in new mutants he's done it with xavier and x-men he did it with brian last episode right right oh yeah 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 yeah, we talked about his bdsm costume there for sure so it, it could play into that as well it could be um multifaceted that's a really interesting and provocative reading Andrew I like that so I mean you're saying that we would be kind of expected to kind of identify with Brian within some of these experiences and take vicarious enjoyment in some of his experiences of humiliation here yeah 100% I I think that's definitely in play and as I said this is a recurring pattern we see it a lot in Claremont's work so you could argue he is trying to always bring the male character down um, but he really seems to linger on these moments and to emphasize the humiliation of the character in a way that does seem kind of um, embodiable if I could invent a terrible term Do we see it as a parallel with Megan's journey, though? Like, I do find it interesting how gendered and sexualized both of their journeys are. I mean, we see Megan's journey beginning with the Coney Island girls, assuming she's been a victim of sexual assault, which, you know, is maybe not an unfair assumption, depending on how we're reading her relationship with Brian, which, as we discussed, is at the very least emotionally abusive. And her inf- and her infernal experience. I mean, she yes. was her her mind was certainly assaulted sexually throughout mm-hmm. that. And her body was changed. So, I mean, it yes. is one of those kind of fantasy rape things where, you know, 
there are implications of that if we're going to read what happens there as being an embodied experience. But I mean, so what about him getting picked up for soliciting? I mean, what's going on there? Like, why include that specifically? Are you giving it enough credit to say that it's trying to parallel and it's not just a dumb joke of like Brian? <laughs> oh, Brian's a buffoon. So he says stuff that's just, it's that's insulting to a female cop. Like, I don't know if anything comes of it. Yeah, I know. I guess I just keep going back to sort of the importance of his body being made a spectacle. Yeah. You know, he's taken out of this superhero space and put in this sort of space that is not the space that he's comfortable with. It's not his country. It's not his space. And he's having the loss of his superpowers all the while that this is happening, right? So he's getting hit so hard with this fish out of water thing, whereas Megan is able to just shapeshift her way through this space and feel at home to a certain extent within all these different groups of people. And you just see such an illustrated contrast between their experiences of reality and their experiences of this different space, which I find interesting. I mean, so in New York is that place where they're sort of like, and, and you can be anything. And Megan very much embodies that. But for Brian, every time he mentions like, I'm a superhero, that's the thing that gets him in more trouble throughout this issue. I mean, the, all, all the, yeah, like all the things that would have been a privilege in another space are sort of rendered a problem in this space. And I do think that's very deliberate. And honestly, I just have this sense that we would like this issue so much more if Alan Davis was drawing it. I really do. Because yeah. I think there's a lot of potential to this story. And I don't think that the, that some of the racial stuff wouldn't have still been problematic. And yet I really think it would have been a different story if, if Davis was drawing it. Maybe, maybe. Because there are Excalibur issues that Davis didn't draw that I do like a lot. It's just, it just feels, for me, for me, it was very much feeling disconnected from everything that I had read up until this point. And then now reading it back critically, you know, 30 years later, I, I still feel that in a way. So that's, it, it's weird. It's a weird issue. <laughs> we should talk about the Kitty meeting Ileana thing. I know Andrew has a lot of thoughts about Ileana as a character. And because, you know, we've been trying to sort of talk about some of these sort of queer subtexts and stuff. And that is a pairing that many people have read as possessing that subtext. So this should, in theory, be a meaningful interaction for Kitty to be meeting the child Ileana and be separated from her friend. And this is another one of those moments that I feel like the emotion of that didn't read right in this artwork and the way yeah. it was presented and I could see it being told very differently but how, what did you make of that scene Andrew because I can see it being a scene that you're going to have issues with yeah I think I don't know it wasn't at first I thought it wasn't long enough to sell the emotion like I like the idea of Kitty coming in hot with anger towards them because it's really anger about losing Liana but it, yeah but, but if I compare it to like um, Extinction Agenda there's a great scene um, between Storm and Wolfsbane that does kind of the same thing and it's a few panels it's efficient and it really works um, here it doesn't even with more panels and more uh, um, dialogue exchanges with lots of different characters. Um, I don't know. I, I wanted this to be the poignant moment. Well, she, Monica had read the New Mutant stuff, but I don't know how, I don't know which eras. And Ilyana was my favorite character at this point, even more so than Kitty. Kitty was my favorite X-Men. Oh, Ilyana is one of my all-time favorite characters in comics. And outside of uh, in, of no context, I wonder, for Monica, does that two pages play at all? Or is it just weird and confusing? Like, if you don't know what happened in Inferno or what happened to Ilyana or anything or who this seven-year-old girl is and why she's running away it just seemed weird to me oh yeah it's definitely a case of like you need to collect all six box tops to <laughs> get get your encoder <laughs> ring because um, it, it really does not fit within the the confines of the story but you're right as someone who read new mutants and as someone who read x-men it wasn't something that felt out of place to yeah. me but definitely if you're only reading excalibur it's not a scene that needs to be there it's a scene that would fit much better inside the actual new mutants comic yeah and i mean i definitely when i would have first read that i hadn't read new mutants or the rest of inferno and i just kind of was like okay that's the thing that happened move 
moving on. I didn't really spend any time in that scene at all. Because I mean, if you're getting into Marvel comics, you have to do that a lot. I mean, we've talked about that as being a specific thing you end up having to do with Excalibur a lot because it introduces so many weird things that we don't end up going back to in some cases for like 40 issues. And yet I think that that's sort of endemic to reading Marvel comics too, especially when you're sort of coming into it later like I did and sort of trying to make your way through these huge back catalogs. There are so many intertextual references that you have to just kind of put aside and like, maybe I'll understand that later, but for now I'm just going to move forward. And that's very much how I would have read it the first time. Are there sort of crucial, important stuff that we didn't get to? I feel like there's so many other things that like, because we kind of came in with like, oh, we all kind of didn't like this issue that much. And yet I'm kind of pushing <laughs> back about it being having some at the very least sort of interesting things in terms of these parallels between Brian and Megan's story, which aren't handled perfectly. But are there things that we desperately wanted to touch that we didn't touch on? Just briefly, I really, I, I kind of like the scene where um, Megan is being assaulted and she gets really angry at the guy. Uh, and that's like her her sort of defense mechanism. And she says, you know, you made me get kind of angry with you. I thought that was kind of cool as a way to showcase that paradox of how male aggressive behavior is complicit in women's aggressive behavior in a way that is, you know, commonly talked about in second wave feminism, but not really a lot at this time period. It's interesting, though, Megan's reaction to that, you know, like how ashamed she feels that sort of yeah, using exactly. the goblin princess to fight back. And it's interesting that she goes to the goblin princess, right? Because then that makes an effort to integrate that as being an important part of her story and to the extent that she's having any character growth her experience of being a dominatrix which is so opposite of how she usually is in which she's sort of bending to everybody else's emotions through her empathic metamorph powers it's an interesting callback at the very least yeah i like that what about rachel in this issue who we didn't talk about at all <laughs> and like the ongoing thing of like she's still not going to introduce herself to her like family even though she has this deep personal connection to that family <laughs> like the scene where she's hovering outside the space station was just so funny and so like sad and i didn't even know what to make of it any anybody have any more interesting thoughts than that about it, makes, it? no that, that that's the part that makes the least sense in this entire issue gene's one of the most powerful telepaths on the planet yeah as written in her book right now she knows rachel is there or she should rachel has no reason to not tell gene anymore you know scott knows rachel exists and scott is i mean he's not in this comic but he's there so scott is aware of rachel madeline was aware of rachel she's not telling gene because presumably louise simonson doesn't want to deal with rachel in the x-factor comic right now it makes no sense there's no good reason for it it, it affects nothing it, it it's just weird there's no storytelling purpose even for it other than to create angst for rachel that is entirely artificial and self-induced i literally hate that which is why i didn't bring it up at all <laughs> for me, I, I, I hate everything about that scene because there's nothing that makes sense from a character point of view all rachel's ever wanted in any appearance that she's had up until this point is a family and to be loved by her mother who is standing seven feet away like the, the, there and is the no of rationalization it, like, for it i get them going for the tragedy of that and i feel it i'm just like just go in there and hug her you stupid idiot this is so frustrating and i get that they're trying to mortgage that emotion and yet it's so illogical that it makes you more angry than sort of you know yes. emotional in the way that you're supposed to feel emotional about it i just pretend that scene never happened it, it's stupid it, it makes no sense <laughs> I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> Monica, any th last things that we didn't talk about that you would really like to talk about from your unique perspective of this comic? No, you let me talk so much and I'm so grateful. Oh God, I could hear, listen to you talk about superhero fashion literally all day. I feel like I could have had at least another hour of that. And maybe we'll have you come back on the podcast another time. We've certainly got some interesting fashion moments coming up in the weeks and months and ugh, years ahead. I would love that. 
Staying. There's a meeting of the round table. No, I can't. So we will wrap up things there. Monica, is there anything that you would like to plug a final time for our listeners? Is there anywhere that people can look for you, anywhere that people can find your work? And we will link your work on our website and Twitter, obviously. But if you want to give a shout out to anything here, now's your chance. I'm always down to talk more superhero fashion. The best places to find me are probably on Twitter or Instagram. And my handle is Monica Marvelous, just like Marvel Comics. I remember there was some conference there. We did a panel on Marvel swimsuit at a conference this fall, which was amazing, which we still need to figure out a way to use some of that work moving forward. You did something so wonderful about the fashion of Marvel swimsuit that we need to see in print in some publications sometime this year. Oh, but um, I think at that time somebody had called you like like Ms. Marvelous, oh, like oh, yes, in the I, chat I function to on Zoom or something. <laughs> And it was so amazing. It was so good. That's a very excellent handle. So maybe look out for that Marvel swimsuit work from one or both of us moving forward. Next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode nine, in which we will be discussing Excalibur number nine, the two-edged sword, in which Davis is back and the team's back in the UK dealing with <sighs> Nazi Excalibur, who are not my favorite, <laughs> but we will talk about it, among other things. There's lots of fun stuff in the issue too, we promise. And we will have another super smart and fabulous guest to accompany us on our journey. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it. Or if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out to us via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issues we're reading that week, and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another very fashionable conversation. Thank you, Monica, for lending us your expertise and insight. Thank you all for listening, and a special thank you to Maximilian of Thought Forum Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out.